Hello and welcome to the podcast for Christ Community Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Tom Job gave a message on Sunday morning, December 11th, that we had a hard time recording, so I asked him to come into the studio and give it once again. This is from Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 1. Oh, I'll just tell it, right? Okay. So I guess it's about time for everybody to, um, you know, watch the movies that you watch at Christmas time and listen to the stories that you always listen to because we don't really have much time left. So I always, every, every year, so I've done this every year since I was in college, I've either read or listen to somebody read, like in an audiobook, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol every year. I mean, I've always kind of obsessed on that story, but, and I learned a lot of things about it. You know what? So when Charles Dickens wrote that in six weeks in 1843, and I think he finished it up maybe like in like December the 10th or 11th. And the whole first uh, printing was sold out by December 23rd. He didn't really make a lot of money on it because he, um, he could be a little bit obsessive about certain things. And he wanted to design the actual cover of it. And it was this expensive red material and gold lettering. And it really cut down super a lot on the profit margin. But he really made a lot of money when he, about 10 years later, he started doing readings at Christmas time in gigantic theaters. It would take three hours and he would read the whole story. And when he got to the part where Tiny Tim died, which, sorry if you didn't know that, kind of, I should have given you a spoiler alert, but he would really cry. And they said so many handkerchiefs would come out in the theater. It looked like a snowstorm had blown through. But, you know, there's um, Ebenezer Scrooge is famous for saying bah humbug. But he actually only says it two times in that book. And both of them are in the very first few minutes. But back then, nobody really said Merry Christmas they, everybody said happy Christmas. That's how they wished each other a happy Christmas. But the phrase Merry Christmas is found in that book 25 times. And that's really when the shift happened and people started to say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Christmas. And it was because of Charles Dickens. And I know that a lot of you too, probably if you haven't done it yet, are going to be watching your annual favorite movie, it's a Wonderful Life, which we watch it every year. And I will tell you this, that if you think you've watched it because you've walked through the living room when it was on TV, you haven't really seen it. You need to just sit down and watch the whole thing from beginning to end. It's the best movie ever. And I've watched it so many times. Like, I know, like, lots of stuff about it. Like, when George Bailey jumped into the river to save Clarence, when he dove into the river off of the bridge at Bedford Falls— that was 37 feet. So like if you're an Olympic platform diver, that's only 32 feet. I mean, it was a long, it was a long way down there. And um, what else? Oh, you know what? This is really kind of weird. But you know, at the end of the movie, when they're collecting all that money for George Bailey, because Uncle Billy lost $8,000 and Mr. Potter stole it. 
so Bert, the policeman, he was the one that saw George on the bridge when George wanted to live again. And they had that talk and he said, Bert, is my lip bleeding? What about that? Well, Bert was, so Jimmy Stewart, I mean, George Bailey runs through Bedford Falls and gets to his house. In the meantime, Bert was the one who went to the airport to pick up Harry Bailey, brought him back and somehow got his accordion, whether he carried it in his cruiser or whatever, and was playing the accordion when they were playing Old Lang Syne. So, wow, I don't know how he did that. But, you know, like the martinis, you know, the martinis who had martinis bar, they were Italian immigrants. And so between 1880 and 1920, four million Italians immigrated into the United States through Ellis Island. And the director of the movie, Frank Capra, actually... His real name was Francesco Rosario Capra, and he was an immigrant. His mom and dad came to the United States in 1903. His dad told him when they saw the Statue of Liberty, he said, son, look at that beautiful light from that statue. That's the most beautiful light that's ever shined since the Star of Bethlehem. His last name, Capra, is really, it's the Italian word for goat. And that's why when the Martinis were moving into their new house and the Baileys were helping them, they had a goat in their car. So the reason I think I've always been fascinated by those stories, those two stories, and there's a few others like it, is because they both contain that idea that it's possible to have a moment that is a transformational moment where if you're living a life with some cruddy circumstances in it, it completely changes and all of the sudden your life becomes amazing and the only thing that changed was your perspective. And I've always wondered if that's true. Is it possible to have a moment that is a transformational moment that turns a cruddy life into an amazing life when the only thing that changes is the way you look at things? You know, because when I grew up, like, so I grew up in, in Oak Ridge in what they used to call a sea house. It just had... I don't know, two or three bedrooms and one bathroom. And we were seven kids. And there was always, you know, our house was always kind of loud and dramatic. And there was a lot of yelling and stuff. I mean, there was a lot of sin that went on before 7.15 in the morning. Like somebody's banging on the only bathroom door saying, get out of there. You've been in there too long. Shut up. I just got in here. You shut up. You haven't just gotten in there. You've been in there for an hour. You know, all that stuff. But So it was always kind of that way. And then it would become like on the day, on the, on the couple of days before Christmas and on Christmas Eve, everybody was trying really hard and everybody got kind of nice and it would, it got kind of sweet and kind around my house. And then my favorite night of the year was always Christmas Eve because we were kind of amazing. Like everybody was so nice to each other and all that. And we would always say, we need to make every day Christmas day. And my least favorite night of the year was always Christmas night. 
because I knew we weren't going to do it. And it would be maybe one day or two and we would be back just the way we had always been telling each other to shut up and screaming and yelling and stuff. So I believe that all around the world, people are looking for the secret of happiness. Is there a secret that could make your life happy when most of the time it's not? One thing that we know, those of us who believe in Jesus and who love him, is that the reason the world continues to turn is because there are still people out there who haven't yet heard the message of Jesus and who haven't opened their heart to him. People who will, but they haven't done it yet. It happens all around the world every day. They never talk about it on the news, but it's the most important thing that happens in the world every single day. So in the, um, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke is the one who tells us about the coming of Jesus, but he's also the one that tells the story of how the message and the good news of Jesus began to go out into the world and spread in the world. He tells that story in a book called the Book of Acts, which he also wrote along with the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 2, when the angel tells the shepherd the good news of the newborn king, he says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, glad tidings. Or behold, I bring you good news. Okay, that is a particular word. It's a Greek word. And it's a word that, that the actual word is glad tidings or good news. But he makes a verb out of it. Like he says, behold, I good news you. Or I glad tidings you. And that is a word that Matthew uses in the Gospel of Matthew, one time. And Mark uses it in the Gospel of Mark, zero times. And, G and John used it in the Gospel of John, no times. But Luke uses it in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts together, 25 times. And so one thing that I noticed in the Christmas story, because Luke tells the most extensive version of the Christmas story. He takes almost two complete chapters to tell it. But in his telling of it, there are certain people who tell other people the good news of the newborn king. And one thing that I noticed about them is all of them are very joyful people. Like they're, they're so excited and they're full of joy to tell other, they almost couldn't help it, telling other people the good news of the newborn king. And another thing that I noticed about the people that tell other people about the baby, the baby born in Bethlehem is that they're very joyful to tell it, but all of them had come from individually a tough time and or 
a difficult place in life. And you get the feeling that coming to see or coming somehow into contact with the baby king filled them with joy, even though they had gone through a tough time. So Matthew tells us that that's exactly the way it almost always is. So there's a place in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so, and in that, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, it begins by saying, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And there's other ones. The word blessed is a word, this is kind of complicated, but it basically means happy. When the New Testament was translated into the Latin language, the word they used for blessed is the word beato. Beati are the poor in spirit, and beati are those who mourn. That's why those phrases are called the Beatitudes. Anybody whose name is Beatrix, like Beatrix Potter or, or Beatrice, it's basically a name that means happy. In Italy, it's a more common word named for women, the word Beatrice, and it just means happy. And basically, he, Matthew says, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, happy people are the poor people. Happy people are pained people. Happy people are humiliated people and happy people are hungry people. And it's like, so you're saying that having a tough time is the key to being happy. Well, kind of, sort of, because the key to being a person of happiness, a person filled with joy, is a person who has opened their heart and their life to Jesus. And generally speaking, people who more frequently open their heart and their life to Jesus are people who are going through a tough time or who find themselves in a difficult place. And he's come for people like that. And they do feel like they need him and they open their heart to him. So you could kind of say, with Jesus in the middle, the key to being a joyful person is going through a tough time. Let me explain really quickly how that works. Like Jesus starts out by saying, happy are the poor in spirit. So Luke has a version, kind of a condensed version of the same same message. I think it's Jesus gave it, in a difficult, in a different time and in a different place. But Luke says, happy are the poor. Matthew said, happy are the poor in spirit. And a lot of times people who are poor, people who just don't have what it takes are people who are often more open and feel more urgently need the need for Jesus, just the need to make it. That's why the message of Jesus is spreading fastest in the poorest countries of the world, in South Africa, in, in Africa, in South America, and Southeast Asia. 
But Matthew says kind of the similar thing, but he said, he said, happy are people who are poor in spirit. In other words, economically, yes, but also, and sometimes people who are spiritually poor. In other words, a person who feels like I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to make it through this day. It's too difficult. My life is too difficult. I don't have what it takes to make it through today, and I don't have what it takes to undo the messes I made yesterday. I don't have what it takes to undo my yesterdays, all of my yes- messy yesterdays, even, even, if it was, even if it was just yesterday. And I don't have what it takes to face tomorrow. It scares me. It feels like it's more than I can handle. And I just can't face tomorrow. I need somebody to help me. And that's exactly why Jesus came. And it's exactly whom he came for, was for people who don't have what it takes for yesterday, today, or tomorrow, that Jesus came into our world. Almighty God became a human being. And he was born in Bethlehem, and he lived a beautiful life. And he didn't really tell anybody this until almost to the end of his time on earth. But he really came to die and to pay for us and to pay for all the messes that we made in all of our yesterdays so that for yesterday we can have forgiveness because of him. And he rose from the dead and he's alive today and he offers to those who don't have what it takes for today, he offers his friendship. Like I'm not going through today by myself. I'm not on my own. Jesus is alive. He's with me and he's going to help me. And when I think about tomorrow, because of him, I have a future. I have a future filled with promises. I have a future that, like the Holy Scriptures say, he's actually working out a special plan for me so I can feel thankfulness in my heart that he has undone all of my yesterdays and forgiveness has been written over all the messes that I made. I have his friendship today to help me make it through this day. So I feel love for him because he's with me all the time and lets me know it. And I have hope for a tomorrow because tomorrow is just a future filled with promises and a plan that he's working out for me. So my heart, because of Jesus in my spiritual poverty, I just have a heart that's full of thankfulness and love for him and hope. And when you add those three together, thankfulness plus love plus hope, it equals joy. That's why people, the poor in spirit, who felt that need for him are the most joyful people, all things being equal, that you know. You know, I think, I think that's for me, like that's the, that's the amazing thing about, for example, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous or 12 step groups, because like for a person, when a person goes to Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step that they have to be willing to take is they have to be, well, they, they have to be a person who is poor in spirit. They have to be a person who says, I am powerless over alcohol. 
and my life has become unmanageable. I literally don't have what it takes. And the second step is a person has to say, and believe it and mean it, I need a power greater than myself to restore me to sanity. Like who says that except people who feel that poverty of spirit that I don't have what it takes to undo yesterday, to make it through today or face my tomorrows. I really, really don't. I need a power greater than myself to make it. And the third step is I turn my life and will over to God as I understand him. So a lot of people, I know like a lot of Christian people kind of go, well, whatever, what is that supposed to mean? God, as you understand him or the God of your understanding, why don't you say you need to turn your life? Why don't they say they need to turn their life over to Jesus? Well, there's a reason why they don't say that. When Alcoholics Anonymous started in the 1920s, it was a profoundly Christian movement. It actually started in a church called Calvary Episcopal Church in Manhattan. And there was a pastor there, a guy named Sam Shoemaker, and he understood that alcoholics were people who literally didn't have what it takes, and they just needed to open their heart and their life up to Jesus. The only thing is, in the 1920s, there was a person, well, Christians said things. There was one person in particular that I think of, a man named Billy Sunday, and Billy Sunday was a very dynamic and dramatic preacher who would preach all over the United States. He did a lot of wonderful things. He was a person who was who believed in racial equality and he demonstrated it. And he was a person who believed in the rights of women and he fought for it. The only thing is Billy Sunday had a thing about alcoholics. He called them drunks. And he always talked about how God was going to judge the drunks. And he always said, he said stuff like the year of Jubilee and hell was the year that beer was invented. And if you look at the bottom of your beer mug, you'll see where it's written made in hell and all of that. And so when an alcoholic, if you talk to an alcoholic about turning their life and will over to Jesus... They would say, how can I do that? Billy Sunday says that Jesus hates me. And so they came up with this concept. What if there was a God who loved you? What if, what if there is a God who is kind to people like you? What if you could imagine a God who is full of kindness and compassion and he knows where you're coming from, is longing to help you? Imagine a God like that and turn your life and will over to him. And that's the reason why eventually and still today, many, many people who go to Alcoholics Anonymous and who work the program wind up finding Jesus as their love and their, their, their rescuer and their savior and the help they need. Because when it's all said and done, looking for a God of compassion and kindness and, who, and love and who's longing to help you. He's the last one standing. You know, he, he winds up being exactly the God they need. A lot of times, I think like if you look at your life like a, a jigsaw puzzle, 
sometimes people, a person might say, yeah, people in Alcoholics Anonymous, they're missing the most important piece. They're missing the last piece, and it's the most important piece. They're missing the Jesus piece. And I guess you could say sometimes that's true. But I think a lot of times people who are Christian, there's a lot of Christians who have the Jesus piece, but they're missing all the other pieces. The part where you're broken, the part where your life is unmanageable, because it is, by the way, the part where you say it, the part where you're spiritually poor, because people who actually are and who find that Jesus is the one they need to undo their tomorrows and make it through the day and face the future, they're the people that Jesus said are the happiest people of all. You know, the next beatitude, he said, bless, he said, happy are those who mourn. And it's like, are you saying happy or sad people? Well, not necessarily because sad people aren't necessarily eventually happy. There's a lot of people that are sad and they're sad their whole life. There are a lot of people that are bitter and they're bitter their whole life. In the language that Jesus, that Matthew wrote his gospel in, Jesus really said, blessed are those who grieve or blessed are those who mourn. And it's like, well, it sounds like you're saying when you lose a loved one, you're eventually going to become happy. And that's not necessarily true because there are a lot of people that lose someone they love. And they never get over it. Mary Lincoln never got over it. She lost a 10-year-old in the White House. And two years later, she lost her husband just a few blocks down the road. And she was never the same. I think that Jesus was saying something a little bit more, something a little bit different. I think that each of these, what they call Beatitudes, each one builds on the one before. And I think that a lot of times it happens that, that when a person gets really in touch with their spiritual poverty and they know they don't have what it takes to make it, and Jesus is the one they call out to and he comes into their heart and just by being present in their heart, he begins to turn lights on and they start to see things about their heart and even about themselves that they didn't didn't really see before because it was always dark in there. So a lot of times after a person accepts Jesus, you know, they, they'll have a moment or a time or, or something happen to make them realize, wow, you know what? I'm not really the person, now that I'm super in touch with my spiritual poverty, I'm not the person that I thought I was. Everybody kind of has a tendency to have this person that I think I am, this person that I want other, my self-image, there's a person that I want to believe and think that I am. There's a person that I really want other people to think that I am. It's the person that I am on Instagram or the person that I am on Facebook. It's my digitally engineered me what some people call your digital double, the person that you want to believe and other people to believe you are, but the person that you're, that you're really not. And then when you have a moment and you realize, I am not that person. I am not the person that I wanted to think that I am. I'm not the person I wanted other people to think I am. That person is kind of dead. 
I need to mourn him or her and realize my self-image, that's not the real me. I've come to know the real me, and it hasn't been pretty. And that's when you can stand there and think, Jesus, can you love this? Can you love the person, not the person that I thought I was, but can you love the person that I really am? That's the person that he has loved the whole time. Jesus doesn't love everybody. He doesn't love Santa Claus. He doesn't love Batman. He doesn't love Shrek. He doesn't love the cat in the hat. He doesn't love people who don't actually exist. And he doesn't love the person that you think you are or the person that you thought you were. He loves the person that you actually are. And when you realize that that person is the the person who enjoys his forgiveness and his friendship and a future with him, I think more than any other moment, that is the transformational moment. When you find out who you are and realize that you're loved, then... The only thing is, I think it's the most transformational moment in life, but I don't think you only have it once. I think it's a moment that you kind of have to revisit multiple times in your travels through this world. Like, George Bailey, like, you know, I I don't think that that one Christmas Eve on the bridge was a moment that could have transformed him forever. I think it was transformational, but I think that there probably would have been moments when maybe he felt a little grumpy again, or maybe his daughter was practicing the piano again, and he's like, do you have to keep playing that stupid song, you know? And then maybe he had to go back to that bridge and stand on that sweet, sacred spot, the spot where he said, get me back, Clarence, get me back. I want to live again. Get me back to my wife and kids. And he would have to remember. You know, I don't know if Scrooge, like if that one Christmas Eve could have been transformational to him. I think he probably needed to have a weekly small group with the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and Christmas yet to come. And if he was feeling a little bit grouchy or a little bit cheap or something, the ghost of Christmas yet to come could just point that bony finger in his face. And he said, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I remember. So there was a guy, I think that moment when you meet the real you and realize that's the one Jesus loved, it's transformational. But you got to have it a little bit over and over. There was a guy in the in the Christmas story, in, in Luke's Christmas story, it's the first really person that you meet in the Christmas story. And his name, he was a member of a couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth. 
And they were 60 years old. And he was a priest who worked in the temple in Jerusalem. Like not all the time, really. He would just work kind of a semi annual week, like two weeks a year, a week, a week at a time, two times a year, because they had 20,000 of them. So it was way more than they needed. But he was the one that would go to the temple and help administer all the things that happened at the temple. And so, and I mean, he should have been pretty much a joyful person because he had, um, I mean, he knew what it was to be poor in spirit, for example, like the, like, so like they knew that when they when they messed up when they had a messy a messy yesterday they they believed in Jesus the best they could like they believed in what they knew about Jesus from ancient prophecies even though Jesus hadn't been born yet and so that the that the messiah was going to come and take care of everything they also had like a system of um that you could key into that would help you have a sense of forgiveness for your yesterdays. Like if you did something bad, and so he was the one who helped people kind of walk through the steps of this. But if you did something bad, or if you had a bad yesterday, if you had a mess, some messy yesterdays, what you would do is you would get a goat or a sheep and you would take it to the temple and what you had to do, like the priest would help you, but he wouldn't do this for you. You had to, you had to take that goat or that sheep and slit its throat and all the blood would splurt everywhere. And it was really messy and, you know, bloody and stuff. And then, well, first you had to put your hand on that sheep's head or the goat's head and say what you did, kind of like you're transferring your guilt onto this animal. And then you had to kill it. And you had to kind of hold it until it until it died and just kicked its last kick and died. And you would know that, you know, when I do, when I have a messy yesterday, it's a serious thing. There has to be some, you know, there has to be bloodshed. There has to be somebody pay for it. There has to be a substitute that pays for it. And it's also really messy. And it's also really sad. You know, just we had a, we, we had five goats, but the, uh, about three months ago, what we have Ernie and Bert and um, Ernie, we had to have him put to sleep on a Saturday night really late. And uh, the vet had to come out and put him to sleep. And then before church in the morning, I had to get up and dig and we had to hold him until he, he was just kind of kicking until he kicked his last kick. And then I had to dig a grave like four feet by f- four feet and a half feet deep by five feet long before church on a Sunday. It was, it was just sad, you know, and that's, but that's what took care of undid their yesterdays and, and they had a sense of forgiveness sort of, and they knew that Messiah was coming and he was going to take care of all that. And then because of that, they had a relationship with God that other people didn't. And he was kind of present with them and like kind of a friend, I guess you could feel that way about it. So you could feel pretty much thankful that you're yesterdays are undone and that today you have like God's presence in the best way you could understand it and you could talk to him about your problems and that the future was full of promises and that God was going to make all of this work perfectly one day when the Messiah comes so you could have hope for the future so thankfulness love and hope make joy and he was also a person by the way who knew what it meant to mourn like where happy are those who mourn, Jesus said. 
he was a person who knew that he wasn't really the person that he thought he was. And the reason is because he and Elizabeth got married. Like, so they were in their, they were in their sixties probably at this point, but they had gotten married back then. They got married when, you know, like they were like 13 and 14. And when people get married, one thing about people when they get married is they often find out, wow, I'm not really the person that I thought I was. Like, I'm a lot more selfish than I thought I was. And I can be a lot more petty and I can be a lot more critical. And I didn't know that about myself. I remember a guy one time, he was a, a guy, a Young Life area director. And he asked me if I could meet with him every week and help what he, you know, what they say, disciple him, like help him grow in his faith. One thing I knew was that he was going to get married in three weeks. And so I said, you know what? Why don't we wait about six months? Because you're about to go through what I like to call God's little discipleship program. Like you're about to find out some things about yourself that you don't know. One guy said, I thought when I got married, I'd find out all kinds of terrible things about my fiance once we got married. I found out all kinds of terrible things about myself that I didn't know. Like the thing that really kind of drove her nuts was that he wouldn't... Um, refill the ice trays when he took them out of the freezer and got the ice out and he would just kind of leave them, not really necessarily leave them for her to fill up and put back in, but that's what, uh, that's what always happened. And it was, it kind of drove her nuts. And she's, and one day she said, you know, when we got married and you said that thing about, you're going to love me with like all of your heart forever until the end of time. And he said, yeah. And she said, do you still feel that way? And he said, yes. And she said, you know what? I don't really need that. What I really need is for you to love me for seven seconds more than you actually do, because that's how long it takes me to fill up that stupid ice tray that you leave out there for me. So, you know, all of us have that time when we realize kind of getting married is a good time to know it. I'm not the person that I thought I was. And you just say, God, can you love this? And then you find out, oh, that's the one he always loved. He didn't love the person that you thought you were. He loves the person that you actually are. So he was a person who should have been a person of thankfulness, love, and hope, and add that up in its joy. But I don't think he really was. At this point, he was 60 years old. And I, you know, one thing about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that even though when they got married, like when they were 13, 14, they never had any kids. And I don't think that, I don't think that for those, for those of us who, have, who haven't had that experience, I don't think that we can possibly understand the depth of pain that is involved in that. Like in our, uh, here at Triple C in our church, I don't know if people have ever noticed it, but it's kind of a secret that I would tell you is we don't really make a big deal of Mother's Day in May. And the reason is, I think we've even had times where we really didn't even mention it. And the reason is because Mother's Day is a day that for a wide variety of reasons can be especially painful for some hearts. And I mean, he was the guy that was helping people find forgiveness for their yesterdays. But I could imagine that in his heart, there might have been that thought rumbling around. God, what did, what, so what did I do? 
What did I ever do? I mean, all my friends had kids. They've got grandkids by now. What did I do that you wouldn't bless me? And I thought, you know, you hear our prayers and blah, blah, blah. I don't know that you heard me. How many years, every, how many years did we pray for that every month just to have our hopes monthly shattered till I couldn't even ask anymore? And when I think about my future, when I think about our tomorrows, our kids were the ones that were going to take care of us when we were too old to take care of ourselves. And I don't know who's going to do it. So instead of thankfulness, love, and hope, I think that there might have been a lot of just resentment about the yesterdays that never came and bitterness towards the one that was to be his friend and anxiety about the future. And the reason I feel that way is because in Luke chapter 1, this was supposed to be the most joyful day of his life because once in your lifetime, maybe you would be the person who won the lottery and got to be the priest who burned incense on the altar of incense in the holy place when you were in there all by yourself. And incense was this gummy stuff that when you put it on this kind of like a, like a, like a grill sort of, but like, a, like the coals of this fire, you would see the smoke go up. You could hear it crackle. You could hear this perfume sm smell, this perfume smell everywhere, every, everywhere. And it represented like our hearts going up to God, our friend and our prayers and everything. And I don't think he was feeling it. And then all of a sudden, there was an angel like standing right beside him. And he was like, what? Who are you? What are you? I'm supposed to be in here by myself. Who are you? And he said, I am the angel Gabriel, and I've come here to tell you some wonderful news. Your prayer has been heard. And he was like, what prayer? That prayer for a baby? I'm 60 years old. I don't want a baby anymore. I mean, you know, we, we wanted to spend our evenings rocking and watching the sun go down. We don't want to spend them rocking in a rocker trying to get our sun to go down. You know, when I was 10, I asked for a pony too, and I want you to know I don't want that either. And Gabriel you know, I, I think he probably explained to him, I'm not talking about those prayers. I'm talking about the prayer that you prayed right now. When you offered that incense and you prayed the prayer that you had memorized for the redemption of God's people. Hey, bud, it's about to happen. It's about to come. The Messiah is about to come into our world. And before he comes, there's going to be someone who's going to get everybody ready for him. And they're going to tell everybody that they need to repent, which means to change your mind. And that someone is going to be your baby. You're going to have a baby. You haven't changed your mind about that. The story of your life, I know you're disappointed that you didn't get the story you wanted, but I just want you to know the story of your life is so much bolder and so much brighter and so much longer than you could ever imagine. And Zachariah, instead of saying, oh, praise, this is so amazing. He said, how do I know? 
How do I know? I mean, I don't want to tell you this, but I got a lot of resentment and I got a lot of bitterness and I've got a lot of anxiety. How do I know? I'm afraid to believe anymore. How do I know that what you're telling me is the truth? And Gabriel's like, oh, I'm the angel. I'm the angel Gabriel, yo. What do, I mean, what do you want me to do? You want me to fly around this room? How do I have to prove it? I'll tell you how I'm going to prove it. Here, I'm going to give you a sign that what I'm telling you is the truth. You're not going to be able to talk from this moment until your baby is born for nine months, which was a good idea. Because to tell you the honest truth, when people are filled with resentment and bitterness and anxiety, I don't really want to hear them talk about the Messiah King. You know what I mean? I be, like a lot of times in the gospel of Mark, Jesus tells a lot of people that he does something wonderful for, don't tell anybody about it. And people always ask, why does he always tell people to not talk about it? I have a lot of people I wish wouldn't talk about Jesus. You know what I mean? I, one time, a professor, Howard Hendricks, he was talking to this real grumpy guy and he said, hey man, are you a Christian? And the guy said, yeah. He said, well, don't tell anybody about it. You'll sabotage the whole operation. And I think in that period, for nine months, when Zachariah, like when Zachariah was completely silent and yet he saw this story happening and Elizabeth did get pregnant and she, st and you, and she started to show and you could start to see it and it's happening and it's happening and his heart filled with joy. And then he looked back on his heart before that, the, in, the, in the years before that, and he was like, wow, you were a pretty resentful guy. You had a lot of bitterness. You had a lot of anxiety. You're not really the person you thought you were. You, you weren't really the priest that you thought you were. With that much resentment and bitterness and anxiety, if you all had had that baby, you wouldn't have been the dad that you thought you would have been. And there's a moment when you're face to face with who you really are and didn't know it. And you say, God, can you love this? That's the guy. That's the girl. That's the one he's always loved. He doesn't love the one that you think you are. He loves the person that you actually are. And no matter how many times because as soon as that baby was born and Elizabeth said, we're calling him John, not Zachariah. And they asked, Zachariah, what do you say? And he wrote on a piece of, of like chalkboard, his name is John. And all of a sudden he burst into singing and praise, a guy filled with thankfulness and love and hope. And you add those up and they make joy. That's the most transformational moment in all of life, no matter how many times, you have to have it. Son of God, Son of Man, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Come now, long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us 
Let us find our rest in Thee. Israel, strength and consolation, hope of all the earth Thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal. Thy glorious throne. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glory's new, no end. By his life, he brings us gladness. Our Shepherd friend, leaving riches with our number, born within a cattle stall. This the everlasting wonder. Christ was born, the Lord of all. Alleluia, what a friend Saving, helping, keeping, loving You are with me to the end Son of God, Son of Man Christ is born in Bethlehem, fully God, fully man. Christ is born in Bethlehem.